Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we're continuing our ongoing series on Who Am I? by focusing on a huge topic that we've danced around but never really treated directly on the podcast, depressed mood, including clinical depression. So I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. How are you doing? I'm good and I'm very glad for us that we're talking about this topic because of course, as we'll get into, it's so prevalent and far-reaching and really important to address. This has definitely been one that we've been wanting to do for a while and now seems like a good moment for it. So here we are. I'm going to start today by putting a bit of a minor trigger warning on this episode. The topics that we're going to be exploring are quite sensitive in nature. Depression and depressed mood are major problems for many people, and the material we're going to get into today will be a bit sensitive in nature. We'll be touching on many topics related to depression, including some of the consequences of it, which does include self-harm. So if these things are triggering to you in a variety of different ways, then it's best to, of course, be kind to yourself and be thoughtful in the way that you approach this information. Feel free to skip around in this episode or to stop it altogether. I'd also like to offer a second thought here, which is, again, a bit of a blanket for all of the episodes that we've done in this series. These episodes generally focus on exploring the more mild state of what can be extremely serious psychological conditions. They're not intended as a clinical tool for either personal or general diagnosis. And if you think that you may have one of these conditions that we've been exploring, you should absolutely speak with a licensed healthcare professional. So we believe that there's a lot of value in demystifying these concepts and in giving people practical and actionable tools for dealing with them in their own life. And generally speaking, we've received a great deal of positive feedback on these episodes. They seem to have been legitimately useful for people. But casually over-diagnosing our friends and family can be extremely problematic, frankly, and even turn into a tool for us to avoid our own issues by placing the blame on other people. We absolutely don't want to be doing that here, and we are not trying to incentivize people into doing that. Please try to apply the information that we try to give you in these episodes as thoughtfully as possible. Uh, we're doing the best we can with it. I wouldn't say that either of us are necessarily a research expert in these topics or something like that. And of course, feel free to double check any of the information we share. The reality is that what we get into in a 30 to 45 minute podcast episode is going to be a very cursory treatment of these topics. And there are nuances around many of these issues that go quite deep. Because depression is a deep and complex topic, we're actually going to be breaking this episode up into two distinct parts. In part one, which is what you're listening to right now, we're going to be exploring what depression is. And in part two, we're going to talk more about what we can do about it. So all that said, getting into the meat of the episode today, I think that people probably understand what someone means when they say, I feel kind of depressed or I'm a bit down. But what's the difference between that kind of casual definition and a more clinical one? It's a far-reaching question. So a little bit later, I'll talk about literally the diagnostic criteria for a major depressive episode. Mm -hmm. And clinical depression essentially depends upon multiple episodes of clinical depression. Uh, there are milder forms that are still significant, uh, technically called dysthymic disorder, in which there's a, a chronic low-grade and yet 
really significant, not to diminish it by calling it low-grade, sense of the blues that don't really meet the criteria for a clinical depression episode and yet are really, really consequential. To speak about it fundamentally, there's a difference between being sad and depressed. Mm -hmm. Sad is a passing feeling. Depression is more of a mood. So when a person feels depressed, to kind of summarize it, typically there's a very weighty sense in the body of a slump of energy, uh, a feeling of uh, just nothingness emotionally, or uh, a, a general sense of just unhappiness, even despair, sense of hopelessness, dejection. It's very far-reaching. And one of the major sources of depressed mood is physical illness. Mm. If you look through uh, symptoms of various illnesses of different kinds, one of the ones that's the most common symptom of all is depressed mood. I know for myself that one of the markers that I might be about to get a cold is I suddenly notice that my mood has gone flat. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another element of depression. There may not be a sense so much of feeling horrible, but just a complete incapacity to feel good. Or maybe you start out feeling good for a few seconds. You know, you get an email with your grandchild's picture in it and it makes you feel happy for a few seconds. But very, very quickly, that big wet blanket of depressed mood comes rolling back in. Great. I think that's a great context to be operating in here. To give a little bit of additional information, it's helpful to understand that depression is really quite common. It's estimated that around 6 to 7% of adults in the United States had at least one major depressive episode in the past year. That's a lot of people, yeah. particularly when you add it up year over year over year. It's also important to understand that depression is something of a spectrum. People can have depressive episodes. They can also have chronic depression where it's more present, perhaps even at a low-grade level for an extended period of time. So just because somebody doesn't necessarily qualify for a clinical diagnosis does not mean that there isn't good information here that could be useful to them in their life. Just a little bit more context. uh, The Stanford School of Medicine estimates that about 10% of Americans will experience clinical depression at some point in their lives. So again, very common. And to put those numbers in perspective, it's estimated that around 300 million people worldwide suffer from it. It's highly likely that most of the people listening to this podcast either suffer from it themselves or know someone who does. Yeah, or grew up with someone who did. To get a little bit more specific, How can someone know if they're depressed versus just a little down these days? Where's the line? What's the kind of clinical procedure for diagnosing this? Yeah, here's where it might be helpful to go through the so-called box score approach to psychiatric diagnosis, which includes psychological diagnosis. It has its limitations where basically to fulfill the criteria for a particular condition, which has implications for things like getting insurance coverage or for it being appropriate to even think about psychiatric medication. Mm-hmm. You know, there are limitations to that box score approach. On the other hand, you know, it's pretty concrete and pretty specific. So I'll go through the technical official diagnostic criteria these days. Basically, to satisfy the criteria for a depressive episode, which typically lasts two weeks or longer, an individual is supposed to be experiencing five or more of the following eight symptoms. And at least one of these symptoms 
should be a sense of depressed mood along the lines of what I said before, or a related loss of interest or pleasure in activities that used to be enjoyable. And the latter one, by the way, is for me, the hallmark Mm -hmm. statement of depression. It's basically you find yourself doing what always used to used to enjoy, and it just doesn't move the needle anymore, or the needle moves really slightly, and then it comes back again. Quick story here: um, someone I know whose mood was generally quite positive, temperamentally cheerful, not not melancholy, basically called me and said, "Wow, I'm sitting here in the mall where I love to go shopping with." my baby son in my lap, who I love dearly, eating some ice cream, which I thoroughly have enjoyed, Mm -hmm. and I don't feel anything at all. Bingo. Depression. that's really poignant. So here we go with the eight. Depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. So I've described that sense of mood as a a weightiness, a a, a numbness, just a blah. You don't feel good. You don't feel good emotionally. Often you don't feel good physically at the same time. We'll get later into chicken and egg, you know, which comes first, uh, the physiological dysregulation or the mental dysregulation, which then feeds into the physiological dysregulation, et cetera. But depressed mood. Number one criterion. Two, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day during this two-week period. Third, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. Mm -hmm. So typically there's a loss of appetite. Sometimes people manage depressed mood by overeating. Uh, There are ways in which that eating can be a sort of primal signal of pleasure that can defend against depressed mood. Uh, And that's why this third criterion is listed here. Four, a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement, observable by others, not merely subjective feelings of restlessness or being slowed down. This is really interesting. People will talk about thinking feels like walking uphill through mud, you know, or people from the outside observe that the other person just seems more sluggish. Extreme forms of severe clinical depression are sometimes characterized by a sense of immobilization that people literally can't get out of bed or, you know, they, they literally just, ugh, no energy whatsoever. Related to that, five, fatigue or loss of energy every day, nearly every day. Um, six, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. In my experience, I think that's a big one for people. That's another one of those big kind of major indicators that you highlighted in terms of the experience of the person who was at the mall. Um, When I can think of times either in my life when I would have described myself as being somewhat depressed, which is for the record, absolutely happened. Or thinking about friends who went through a period where I would maybe describe them or they would describe themselves as being somewhat depressed. That consistent feeling of excessive guilt is really one of the big indicators to me, particularly oriented toward how your condition negatively influences the people around you and really taking almost excessive ownership and responsibility for that. Yeah, there's a 
terminology, morbid self-preoccupation, mm. where you're just caught up in feeling really horrible. And in the extreme, like, for example, postpartum psychosis, you have situations that are just so tragic where a mother in the extreme of postpartum depression moves into a psychotic version of it where she feels uh, that somehow she's so horrible that the best thing she can do for her children is to take their life. Mm. I mean, that's crazy, obviously. And yet you can just imagine the extreme version of that. Okay. And then a couple more. Seven, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. I see that sometimes with people taking IQ tests, that if a person is suddenly not performing as well as you'd think they would normally, one of the things to think about and rule out is, whoa, is there some depressed mood here? And then the last is number eight, recurrent thoughts of death or recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. So to make a point here that we may well make again, if you or someone you know is depressed, it's just really appropriate much of the time to ask, whoa, uh, have you been thinking about dying? Have you been thinking about killing yourself? This is sort of a taboo, and yet it's not like you're going to put the idea into their head. <laughs> no way. Uh, you might as well get it surfaced. And the, you know, the classic diagnostic questions are, have you been thinking of killing yourself? It's one thing to have passing thoughts of, well, they'd be happier if I weren't here, and then you move on. It's really different if you become preoccupied with them. And then if so, do you have a plan and do you have the means? And those are really key questions. So those are the eight criteria that are listed. You can think about five of the eight. It's serious, right? It's one thing to say, oh, the stock market went down today. I'm depressed. Oh, well, or I really blew that last shot in golf. I'm so depressed. I want to jump off a bridge. That's a really passing comment. But classically, to imagine someone for two weeks or more living in five out of eight of these symptoms is a really big deal. And here I'd like to make another quick point, which is it's also a big deal for the people in that person's life. And Sometimes it's wearing to be married to or raising or be parented by or friends with or lovers with someone who's depressed. And there can be an understandable tendency to want to say to that person, yo, snap out of it, get out of bed, just do some you know, push-ups, go for a walk, look on the bright side, watch a cat video. Uh. And that's, I would say, by the way, another real hallmark of clinical depression that ordinary level one interventions don't make a difference. Mm. The kinds of things that would make a difference for someone who's having a passing setback or extra stressful day at work, or for whatever reason, is just kind of mopey about something. And yet, you know, if they fill in the blank, exercise or just relax and go have a nice dinner or walk the dog or read a funny book or watch a funny movie or hang out with friends for an evening or do a gratitude practice or you know self-compassion meditation if that makes it different in a significant way you weren't clinically depressed on the other hand if those level 1 perfectly appropriate wonderful interventions just are like 
using a squirt gun to try to put out a bonfire, then you need to look more seriously at what could actually be going on here. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's really important, and again, there's a lot of research about this, that having a depressed spouse really wears on a marriage. It wears on relationships. And one of the key things for someone who's in relationship with someone who's depressed is to have a lot of compassion for what it's like to be them. Yeah, I think that's a great reminder for people and also a way to have compassion for your own experience if you are inside that kind of a relationship dynamic to go, look, this isn't just hard for you. This is hard for everyone in these circumstances. And I think that that kind of deep understanding really in your heart that you too are going through something that is challenging. You're working with a spouse, working with a loved one. In the second part of this episode, we'll get more into interventions and things that people can do. But throughout that process, if you are in kind of a caregiving role here, I think that really having a lot of uh, sympathy and compassion for yourself, in addition to having it for the other person is extremely valuable. Really well said. And just I was thinking here for us that We'll talk a little bit more about what it is to be sad. And also we're going to talk about what it is to feel stressed or oppressed by circumstances and uh, mistreated. And we may well talk about what it is to grieve or to mourn. For example, we had a recent podcast, as you know, with Roshi Joan Halifax, world-class expert on death and dying, deep teacher. And that's one thing. On the other hand, I've never experienced clinical depression mm-hmm. as we just mm-hmm. described it. Yeah. Two weeks in a row, never. I can remember a particular time in high school where things happened and for about three days, I truly fit the criteria. Mm. And, and then after about the fourth day, I started to snap out of it, partly because I decided to snap out of it. And also, if you can decide to snap out of it, it ain't clinical depression. Yeah, that's and, a great point. Yeah, and so my point is, in general, even if we say, given the stats that you quoted, that, you know, round number ballpark, at 10, one out of 10 people at some point in their life will fulfill the criteria for a, an episode of clinical depression. That means that nine out of 10 people have not had that. And it can be really easy to just misunderstand and even disrespect people who are gripped in the throes of it if you've never had it yourself. I think that's totally right on, particularly when it has to do with full-on clinical depression. One of the things I want to explore for a moment here before we get into our next topic, which is that difference between depression and sadness, is the idea of depression as a bit of a spectrum. So let's say, theoretically, that somebody does not fulfill five of these criteria. But for a two-week period, they do basically have a depressed mood, quote-unquote. Yeah. And they do have challenges with their energy, and they do experience significant weight fluctuations. They may or may not qualify for full-on five-box clinical depression, right? but that doesn't mean that there isn't something there to explore or that they aren't, quote-unquote, on the spectrum of depression to a certain degree. All of this terminology gets a little hairy and a little challenging because you want to honor the full-on version while also acknowledging that there are moments in a person's life where they're down for an extended period of time, regardless of whether or not they qualify for full clinical depression. And I think that there are challenges there in kind of respecting that full spectrum of possibility. 
Yeah, honestly, as a longtime psychologist, uh, I won't call myself a specialist in depression. Mm. On the other hand, if you're a psychotherapist, you deal with depression a fair amount of the time. The bottom line for me is someone who says, I feel like crap. Nothing is fun anymore. Everything that used to work in the past to get me out of this isn't working. Bingo. Yeah. That works for me. Absolutely. Regardless of whether or not it kind of matches the formal criteria. Hey, man, it's close enough. So with all that said, and we've kind of already touched this a little bit, but what's really the difference between depression, quote unquote, and sadness, broadly speaking? Right. So sadness is, as I said earlier, a feeling. And of course, language is pretty imprecise when we're talking about this stuff, but we'll try to make a distinction here. And also by its very nature, feelings have more of a transient quality to them, and they're more situation-specific. While depression, once it comes in, the way I would put it a little bit is that depression is like the climate. Sadness is like the weather. Weather Mm -hmm. patterns move through. They're transient by their nature. They come and they go. On the other hand, if the climate overall, day in and day out, is hot and humid, that's more like a mood. The other thing I would want to say about sadness is that sadness and depression can co-occur. This is where it might be useful to talk about first dysthymic disorder, which is fancy clinical terminology for having, you could say, blue mood or frequent sadness. At some point, weather becomes climate, right? You know, so if you're having a lot of sadness day in and day out, and you just can't shake it, well, that starts moving into dysthymic disorder. And people can have both. They can have a background of dysthymic disorder, kind of chronic low-grade background sadness or that, you know, is punctuated by a certain enjoyment in things for a while, but then you tend to revert to the equilibrium of your overall mood as sort of mild but significant feelings of sadness and related feelings. And then periodically, the bottom falls out and you drop into a genuine episode of severe, of of clinical depression, which as you said earlier, by the way, itself can be scaled from mild to moderate to severe as episodes of clinical depression. Last thing I'll say about this is that there's an acronym, SAD, SAD, which stands for sad, anxious, depressed. And that unholy triumvirate (laughs) often (laughs) comes together in the life of a person and they all kind of are in the mix. To kind of just muse for a second here and please jump in with your thoughts on this because I'm just kind of pontificating and wondering out loud and I would love your take on it. It sounds like one of the big challenges here is actually a diagnostic issue fundamentally where we're drawing these pretty fine distinctions between sadness and depression. I thought the distinction you drew about the climate and the weather is a wonderful one. And yes, that's a big distinction, but at the same time, it requires some nuance to understand it. Mm -hmm. Then we're drawing the distinction between low-grade and moderate and severe clinical depression. Then we're drawing the distinction between that and maybe not meeting the requisites for clinical depression. But as you were saying, hey, I'm bummed and nothing that used to be enjoyable is enjoyable anymore. Mm. And then in a future episode, we're going to be exploring bipolar disorder, which used to be known as manic depressive. 
where you are depressed, but you also have periods of manic episodes. And during those periods, the person experiencing them might think that the world is amazing. They Mm. might be extremely happy and energized, actually. Yeah. So all of these things are part of this big family of stuff that we might call depression or negative mood or whatever word you want to use for it, really. But it can be really challenging to tell one from the other. And they all might have slightly different effective interventions, which, man, to me, just sounds like a very complex and challenging stew. That's why I love being a therapist. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's endlessly messy and interesting and wonderfully human. Well, let me throw in another distinction to really mess with it for us. Sure, okay. Yeah, <laughs> we go. And you know, of course, my covert purpose in doing these podcasts with you often is to try to enroll you in going to <laughs> get a PhD in clinical psychology. But so far, my efforts have been to no avail. But I'm, I'm very resilient. <laughs> of course, maybe we're talking you out of it. I don't know. <laughs> it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, I think it's fair to say. Well, well, here's another weird wrinkle. So let's just kind of focus here on the depression and sadness spectrum and leaving anxiety kind of off to the side there. Okay, great. Then there's a distinction between what is present in the mind of the person or what is warded off or pushed under the surface through one short-term coping mechanism after another Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. may carry a long-term price. Mm -hmm. For example, classic phrase, the manic defense against depression. This is a situation where someone works a ton, seeks really stimulating intensive activity. They're okay. They're functional and they kind of feel okay during that period. But If you pull away that so-called defense, that coping mechanism, if they go on vacation or they have to shift their pace for some reason, maybe they have a medical issue that says, no, sorry, you can't work 80 hours a week anymore. You just got to cap it at 40. Suddenly, all that bottled up, pushed away, sadness and blues and weightiness that they overrode by hitting the gas pedal 24-7, starts moving in. And that too is something to really think about. Think about the ways in which people Mm self-medicate, depressed mood, through fill-in-the-blank, uppers of various kinds, cocaine, stimulants of different kinds, entertainments, overeating, speaking of one of the reasons why weight gain is a potential symptom of depressed mood. What happens when we remove that scaffolding for our mood? Does the building collapse or can it stay upright with well-being without those supports? Great. So I want to explore one more question during this first part. And then in part two, we'll get more into interventions and working with depressed mood of various kinds. And it's the question that I ask often during these episodes, which is the distinction between heritable and non-heritable factors. So broadly speaking, where does depression come from? Well, I want to really complicate it. And I find it's really important to call this out. Number one, as I said earlier, just to underline it, depressed mood is a hallmark symptom of some kind of physiological condition, including something that is 
technically subclinical and or what's called prodromal, which is the early phase of things gradually going downhill. And so one of the absolute first things I routinely tell people who I work with, if their mood is at all depressed, is go to your physician Go to someone with a medical license and uh, get uh, you know their advice, including potentially some significant assessment, and pay attention to things that are quote unquote subclinical or low normal, because if they're wearing on your mood, then they matter. A brief little comment on that: my dad, your grandfather, when he was alive, particularly toward the end of his life, started to report feeling kind of down. Mm. And he also mentioned just kind of in passing that he felt cold a lot, but, you know, he was okay. And he's a North Dakota cowboy turned zoologist, a pretty robust, uncomplaining person, quite stoic. And then when he was in the hospital for other reasons, and they ran some panels on him, I said to the attending physician, please check his iron levels because he comes from a family background in which there have been issues of anemia. I think his maternal grandmother died due to pernicious anemia. And just check it out. And the doctor said, oh, I'm going to look into that. Discovered that my dad had, you know, low-ish levels of iron. They were not technically anemic, but they were sort of toward the more low end of the range. So he said, yeah, let's give him a a vitamin with a little iron in it, you know, like let's say a, a woman uh, before menopause might take, say, and my dad started taking that vitamin and what do you know, his mood, his energy and his sense of not being cold in his body actually made a change. So pay attention and push if you can with regard to physiology, point one. Point two, Freud wrote this classic paper called Morning and Melancholia. And he was trying to make the point that the characteristics of depression, melancholia, look a lot like the symptoms of grief or mourning after a loss. So actually, technically, one of the rule outs in the criteria for clinical depression is that these symptoms are not plausibly due to another cause. And the other causes that are listed in the diagnostic manual have to do with physical illness as well as situational factors like a recent loss. In addition to situational factors, I think it's important to pay attention to the ways in which poverty or injustice, discrimination, prejudice, assault, trauma have impacts on mood as well. And if we wanted, for example, to lift the mood of many people around the world, lifting them out of chronic poverty would really, really make a big difference. So I think it's important as well to account for situations like job loss or being harassed at work or having highly stressful job situations. Stress is a major factor in the slippery slope into depression. These are really important things to pay attention to as well. Okay, then this question in terms of mental factors, what is innate and what is heritable? gets really interesting. And this is where uh, you might be really up on the, the current research for us in terms of preparing for this, uh, this conversation. And, mm-hmm. and I welcome you to you know, kind of jump in. As we've talked about in general, there's a loose balance on average, key phraser, on average, that's roughly 40, 60, one-third, two-thirds, heritable, non-heritable causes. All that said, to ballpark it, here's how to kind of think about it. If the base rate 
in terms of lifetime prevalence of clinical depression is about one in 10, right? Then suppose that you have a parent, what's called a first degree relative, let's say. If you have a parent, sibling, or even let's say one of four grandparents who, without a doubt, has a history of clinical depression, what does that have to do to your base rate of the likelihood of having clinical depression in your lifetime distinct from the environmental, psychological, child-rearing factors that might flow to you by virtue of that person in your family being depressed. So we got to tease these apart. That's why it's kind of messy and interesting and complicated. All that really said, my hunch probably is that having a first-degree relative with a, a clear history of clinical depression probably at least doubles a person's risk in, in their base rate of likelihood. And it's something to think about. So for example, if you know that you have a parent, let's say, who clearly was clinically depressed, and you're thinking about certain kinds of life experiences like having a child or exposing yourself to a lot of chronic stress, you might think a little bit more about that if you know that you perhaps have a genetically grounded vulnerability to depression yourself. I think that's great information. And also it's important to keep in mind that there's a lot of research inside of this field. It's very much a developing one. So any kind of claims that we make here, statements on it need to be sort of offered with a grain of salt based on what might come later. This is our best knowledge as of today, but you know who knows in the future. For instance, this year, there was an enormous meta study that came out, which casts some doubt on the idea that there's any one depression gene and instead indicated that it's likely that, speaking of complexity, there's a bit of a gene soup that tends to lead to a higher incidence of depression. But unraveling the exact linkages and causes of those various genes is absolutely going to be a project, and I would imagine is something that we won't really have a lot of clarity on for probably a pretty extended period of time. So as with all of these things, it's good to acknowledge both that we might have some innate genetic characteristics that increase our likelihood of having these depressed mood states. And at the same time, there are a lot of non-heritable factors and therefore, in my opinion, a lot of things we can do to better interact with these depressed mood states and thereby increasing our chances of living a happy, healthy life, broadly speaking. That's really well said. And I wonder if I could just add two things here. The first is to talk about this in a way that maybe is more imaginal and intuitive, if you think about your psyche as kind of a landscape or an interior, what characterizes that interior, especially when you slow down and are less distracted and less able to use let's say, the manic defenses of one kind or another or different kinds of defenses. You're not entertaining yourself. You're not distracting yourself. You're just hanging out. The feeling of being you. When the bouncing ball of your state of mind slows down and stops bouncing around and kind of returns to its home base, kind of its resting state, what's it like to be you? Who are the characters in you? And what are their relationships with each other? For example, is there a sense that 
you, the diversity of you, the complexity of you, has a lot of, I'll call them characters, that are encouraging and affirming and nurturing. And they offer perspective. And they're hopeful. They're helpful. They're sweet. Or is that interior populated a lot by a sense that there are these terrible, treacherous swamps that you've got to be extremely careful to not start thinking about, or you will get sucked into the quicksand. And also in this vast interior, are there characters who are really malevolent, mean, shaming, terrible? I imagine the vision of, I guess, the judges in a Kafka novel that are you know, huge authoritarian figures sitting high on a stage and the psyche or the innermost self is tiny and small and terrified of them. And to me, this is really the key question. It's deeper than all the very useful science about this stuff and the useful diagnostic categories and all the rest of that. It's interesting that the logo for the American Psychological Association is represented as Poseidon's trident, Psi. And it has two branches in in the trident, one represented with very sharp lines, uh, sharp angles. The other is wiggly and squiggly. It represents both the science and the art. And in the art, the mystery, the openness of it, the endless frontier of the human psyche. And with regard to that latter element in psychology, the the mystery, the art, the vision beyond words, the, the imaginal, that really is the bottom line for a person. What's it like to be you when things settle down and the hamster wheel is no longer spinning? That's the key question, I think. And if... When you settle down and it's an unhappy place there, that's what there is to really deal with. I think that's a great reflection and really a wonderful note to end this part of our episode on. So we'll be back with another episode. This was part one. That will be part two, which will focus more on exploring interventions and things that people can do, practically speaking both to support themselves if they happen to have a depressed mood or to support those around them if they have a loved one or significant other who is dealing with these challenges. So today in part one, we spent a great deal of our time drawing useful distinctions between clinical depression, being maybe not clinically depressed, but somewhere on the depressive spectrum versus sadness, versus blue mood, versus being a little down, versus grief, and all of these other distinctions. And understanding the differences between these things can really be quite useful in terms of coming to terms with them both inside of ourselves and identifying useful interventions. We also talked about some of the science related to depression, specifically the distinction as we got into at the end between heritable and non-heritable factors and also some of the statistics around the prevalence of depression, broadly speaking. We then also spent a little time talking about how depression is formally diagnosed in a clinical setting, including the DSM's diagnostic criteria for depression, of which you need to have five of eight factors to be formally identified as clinically depressed. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, We would really appreciate it if you would take the time to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. 
And hey, maybe leave a positive rating and review. It really does help us out. It's probably one of the best ways that we have right now to support the podcast as a whole. So until next time, thanks for listening.